Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Hallecker, and today it is uh, a real privilege and a delight to have with us Paul Hendrickson, the author of Sons of Mississippi. Uh, Paul, welcome, and this is a, a real thrill for us. Thank uh, you, Carl. Uh, Paul has been a renowned writer for many years. His four previous book, The Living in the Dead, which was uh, about the Vietnam era, was a nominee for the National Book Award. And this book, Sons of Mississippi, has won a prestigious award called the Heartland Award, award which comes out of the Chicago Tribune. And it's given to uh, a book that best uh, typifies the spirit of uh, living in the Heartland, that part of the country. So congratulations on that great honor, Paul. Thank you, Carl. Uh, and before uh, Paul moved back to the Philadelphia area to teach at Creative Writing at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, he was at the Washington Post. Can you tell us a little about your experiences down there, Paul? Um, I worked in daily journalism for um, 30 years, most of it at the Washington Post. And that's, um, we were just talking off camera, uh, you live in the capital. It's a pretty stimulating experience. And uh, I got married in Washington. Uh, both of my sons were born in Washington. I wrote three books in Washington. We find ourselves here now and I worried even though I, I so love teaching at Penn and, and we came here because of that I worried that the quality of living for me outside of the job might be less to my great surprise I'm finding how much I enjoy Philadelphia living out here in these western suburbs we live on the edge of the main line in Havertown is is just a very pleasant experience one green space goes into the next green space and uh, we live very near Haverford College and I, I use the college and walk on the walking track and um, so at my advanced age to have found a new place to live and to be happy in that place uh, is a wonderful experience Oh, it's also wonderful for book chat, so Thank you. we're delighted. Uh, let's talk about the book a little, Paul. Sons of Mississippi, what is that title about? Who were the Sons of Mississippi? Well, that's, uh, uh, that's the key question, Carl, and uh, I appreciate the way that you seem to have read the book. Um, I, I've said this a lot, and I'll just try to give a very quick description of it. I think we don't find our books as much as they find us. And that sounds mysterious, and I think we need to have some respect for the mystery. I wasn't looking for this book. I was in the process of finishing this other book about Vietnam and Robert McNamara, which had taken on and off 12 years of my life in between the journalism and, and having abandoned it at one time and writing another book in between. The short answer is I was standing in a bookstore in Berkeley, California. And at night when I'm on the road researching, I don't go to bars, I go to bookstores <laughs> to, to refine myself, to cool out. And I was simply paging through a book of civil rights photography by the great Charles Moore, who was one of the renowned civil rights photographers. I didn't really know his name. I knew a lot of the images. The book was called Powerful Days. And there on page 55 in a double page spread was a photograph that stopped me in my tracks. Why that particular photograph found me, even to this day I can't say, but what it was, was of seven Mississippi police officers who were dressed in coat and tie, civilian clothes. The one in the middle holding a bat, all of them grinning malevolently, all of them suggesting utter violence. And it scared me. 
And something was born in that moment. Uh, I didn't understand what the something was. I thought it was a book about those gentlemen. Well, it is about those gentlemen, but essentially the heart of the book has to do with its title, The Sons of Mississippi. It's the sons of these men and the grandsons of these men. What did those 60s sheriffs, those avowed segregationists, pass on? What came down through the bloodlines? What gene of intolerance and bigotry came down through the bloodlines of these men to everything that you cannot see in that photograph? And that, that became the driving question of the book, Sons of Mississippi. It's a fascinating way uh, the title came about. Uh, reading the book, I, I almost thought that perhaps an alternate title could have been The Ghosts of Emmett Till. Uh, the Emmett Till case, as you clearly bring out, sort of defines everything about the modern South, what the South is trying to get away from and what its baggage, for lack of a better word, is. Is that a fair assessment? That's a very fair assessment, Carl. Um, just to back up for uh, 10 seconds, these men in this photograph, this was September 1962, and they were gathered at the University of Mississippi to stop James Meredith from integrating the University of Mississippi, the first black man to step inside the lily-white gates of this bastion of segregation. The murder of Emmett Till, which you just referred to so correctly, happened seven years before that, in 1955. But you asked, is it a fair assessment to think that an alternate title could be The Ghosts of Emmett Till? This exactly for this reason. The Emmett Till murder, and, and I think most of your viewers would know about Emmett Till, he was a 14-year-old black boy who rode a train from Chicago to Mississippi, did something in a country store, reputedly wolf-whistled at a white woman, and for that, they took him in the middle of the night and made him undress and shot him in the head at point-blank range with a 45 and barbed wired his neck to a 75 pound cotton gin and dumped him in the Tallahatchie River. This brutal, almost grotesquely unimaginable 1955 murder. And what I have found, and to directly answer your question, is that that murder, before the civil rights era of 55, it kind of touches everything that we, that we think and then we've come to understand about Mississippi. The, the murder of Emmett Till kind of figuratively and almost literally touches every other race story in Mississippi. And in point of fact, this particular picture and these particular men, there was a direct link to the Emmett Till murder. I didn't know that when I'm standing in that bookstore and looking at this photograph. And as I say, this photograph was shot seven years after. Right, well, talk a little bit more about the sheriffs and their offspring, but uh, m much of your book uh, concerns uh, the, the uh, purpose of this photograph, the story of James Meredith's attempt to integrate the University of Mississippi. And you, of course, in your book have, had interviewed him several times. How would you find James Meredith as a result uh, of his experiences back then? What, what type of man has he become, or is that an fair assessment? It's a, it's, a, it's a very important question, Carl. I appreciate you asking it. Uh, it, it again suggests to me that you're getting to the things that concerned me most in the story of this book. James Meredith is not in this photograph. James Meredith is a man approaching 70 years. 
He has had a very difficult life. He's a mysterious figure. He is a contradictory figure. He has done things that would suggest after the civil rights movement that he is against civil rights. He has made what we would think of as crazy statements. He worked in Washington, D.C. for Senator Jesse Helms. This was long after this event in Mississippi. Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina was one of the chief obstructionists to civil rights, to race. We started to talk about James Meredith and who he has become as a result of his experiences at the University of Mississippi. Can you uh, continue along with that? I hope I can. I hope mm -hmm. I can be succinct. There are several really important things for me to say here. I do feel that Meredith suffered tremendously from this event. If you can imagine mobs of angry white men who want to lynch him, what does that do to the inside of your head, to your cranium in all the years afterward? The truth is that Meredith was a difficult person to understand, almost with a kind of divine sense of mission before this event. But you take the cranial pressures put on you after this kind of parboiled experience, and I don't know whether you ever recover. I do know that he has done such crazy, contradictory, zigzag things that he has become almost an embarrassment to the civil rights history establishment. I don't view it that way at all. I view him with a certain compassion, who is a man who is deserving of a full-length biographical treatment, which he's never had. In this book, I try to write about him at length. I mean, he, you could say, Carl, is the operating force of this entire photograph. He's not in this photograph, but these men menacingly waving their sticks, are their billy clubs are waving it at his head figuratively and literally if they could get his head within a foot of of this tapered billy club um, so meredith will say to this moment confounding things and we talked about he's a son of mississippi he's a native mississippian so one of the things i wanted to do was try to understand what did he pass down to his sons mm -hmm. And that becomes a part of the story as well. I mean, Joe Meredith, one of James Meredith's sons, is a friend of mine. He obtained his PhD from Ole Miss. He is a guy who has had to bear up under a lot of questions. Why did your father go work for Jesse Helms? Why did he drive to New Orleans and sit for a photographic opportunity with James, with um, David Duke, who was, you know, the former imperial wizard of the KKK who was running for governor. Meredith did that. And so Joe Meredith, the son, in his very quiet, shy way, has had to answer those questions. Yes. Um, you actually, I, I know most of the sheriffs were dead by the time you started to write this book, but you actually did interview a, a couple of them, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, when I began this book in 1998 on a leave of absence from the Washington Post, I simply had the photograph in my hand. And here I am, a guy with a northern accent and khakis and a button-down shirt, flying into Memphis, renting a rental car, and driving into Mississippi, hoping against hope that I'll be able to resurrect something breathing from this photograph. Well, it expanded exponentially, and the true power of it are these sons and grandsons. But of the seven figures in the story, two were alive when I began, and in fact, the one in the middle, 
biting off the tip of his lucky strike and baring his teeth with his slicked black hair, waving the stick, he was alive. He was Sheriff Billy Farrell, and he had been for 28 years the Sheriff of Natchez, Mississippi. When I found him, he was an old retired man sitting on a dock uh, across the Mississippi on the Louisiana side of the river. But the way it always happens in Mississippi, Billy Farrell was alive. Guess who was the present day sheriff? Billy Farrell's son, William T. Farrell II, known as Tommy Farrell. So I spent a lot of time with Tommy. And with Tommy's son, who is a law enforcement official out in the Southwest as a border patrolman. But Billy Farrell, the guy in the middle, I spent time with him until he died of cancer a couple of years later. And then another figure in the book who uh, was very, very aged in his 80s, and he was alive. And he's a very fascinating figure. I remember you uh, suggested to me earlier that we might talk about him, but I, I, should, let, I should let you get a question in, Carl. <laughs> well, I've been answering, asking all the questions, and it's just been great. But picking up, I think, the, the thread of the Farrells was very, very important to this book because they were actually the father and the sons you talk about. As, as you mentioned, Billy, the original sheriff, his son Tommy, and his grandson Ty. Ty. To uh, what extent were Billy's racial attitudes passed on to his son and grandson? Um, do, do, I mean, was that hatred conveyed through the uh, yeah, What happens, I find, is that each generation tends to refine it a little more and try to exorcise some of this poison from the system. Sometimes the generation flips back and you find it as bad as it was in the earlier generation. What has happened in the Farrell family is that Billy Farrell, the man in the center of the photograph, you could take it back generations beyond that because Billy Farrell came from lawmen too. But just start with Billy Farrell. He passes to his son, Tommy Farrell, who is right now, as we speak in real time doing this interview, He's the current sheriff of Natchez, Mississippi, and the former president of all the sheriffs in America, the National Sheriffs Association. He's a very political figure. He's very politically savvy. Um, in his sheriff's office in Natchez, right behind my head where I sat in a chair interviewing him, was a portrait of General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was one of the founders of the KKK. So I had to ask Tommy about that. Tommy's son, Ty, is a U.S. Border Patrolman. And you could say that he has brought racial relations into the 21st century because what Ty does, William T. Farrell III, is chase illegal immigrants who have tried to steal across the border. So instead of the black-white story, it's the brown-white story, which is race relations in the 21st century. Ty is a sensitive guy who has all of these demons sitting on his shoulders. Ty is a guy that you would like to interview. Is he free of it? No, he's not free of it. He's not free of it any more than, in a sense, you or I are free of it. I think, Carl, that one of the most important things to say is that I wanted to do this book because these guys are the same color I am, and I'm only two clicks away from, if, you know, given a twist of the screw, if I had been born down there, or if I hadn't had the education that I have, 
Paul, within your book, you mentioned a figure, John Ed Cotham, and you call him the most compelling figure in the book. Who was he and, and why? Um, this uh, photograph of these seven um, Mississippi sheriffs, there's one at the far right whose face you cannot see. He's the only one in the photograph whose face you cannot see because he's turned. He's turned toward the, the waving club. You see his shoulders, the back of his head. The photographer, of course, had no way of knowing because it was a grab shot. It was a click shot and go. You're in the midst of chaos. You're in the midst of a riot about to break out. The photographer had no way of knowing that that man whom he captured with his back turned was almost a perfect expression of the old Frank Lloyd Wright uh, dictum. He's the great architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, that form follows function. And here's what I mean. That man at the far right, whose face we cannot see, of these seven figures in the book, he is morally ambivalent. He was not a true seg, as they call them, hater. But was he willing to step outside of all that he came from and say this is wrong? No, he wasn't willing to do that. He went along. He was part of the times. But in his heart and in his gut, was he a true seg hater? I am convinced he wasn't. And the reason I'm convinced is because I have spent hours upon hours upon hours with this old, old, old man who is now almost stone deaf uh, and, of course, would want to sanitize his history and put himself in the best light. But teasing apart his life story and, and talking to him at length and talking to so many other people who knew him in that community, I am convinced that he was the morally ambivalent figure. Why is that the most compelling story for me? There's a line in Dante that says, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who are morally neutral. <laughs> Interesting. And his son, his grandson, mm -hmm. his grandson is the major character in this book, Johnny Cothran. Mm -hmm. And he, 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 he's the namesake of this man in the picture. And Johnny Cothran works the overnight shift at Home Depot in right. Memphis. And Johnny Cothran has all this stuff sitting on his shoulders, just like Ty Farrell, the grandson of Billy Farrell swinging the bat. Uh, I do want to jump ahead because I do want to make sure I get this question because we were talking before and I, I, I want to know, do you have plans for another book? Uh, I, I do, and I'm always petrified to speak about a work in progress, but I've signed a contract for the next book project with Knopf, the same publisher. This will be my fourth book with them. Um, Carl, for either good or ill, we have the title in hand of the next book. We never had the title in hand. I mean, we went years into Sons of Mississippi before we had the title. We went years into the previous book about Vietnam, The Living and the Dead, before we had the title. Here, we have the title. So I'm gonna tell you the title and let it go at that. Mm -hmm. Now, as a precede to that, if I said to you, DiMaggio's bat or Satchmo's horn, you'd get a very quick, vivid picture in your mind. Mm -hmm. So, I am going to say to you, little suspense drum roll here. <laughs> Hemingway's boat. 
it's not a biography of right. a floating piece of wood, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a concept for looking at a lot of things, not least, again, some of the life of Ernest Hemingway, who owned a boat, a very mm -hmm. famous boat in American literature, owned it for 27 years, called the Pilar, owned it for the last 27 years of his life. And the, this project, which will take me to Havana and to Key West and to many places in between, is Hemingway's boat. Fascinating. I imagine this will, you know, a lot of care and a lot of research and a lot of time yeah. goes into your book, so I'm sure. Yeah, it'll consume four or five years. Right. Well, we will look forward to that one, and we'll look forward to having you back on Book Chat to talk about that if you're so inclined. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> um, you interviewed in the book Eddie McDaniel, a former Grand Dragon of the Klan. Was that an intimidating experience? Yeah, he, Eddie McDaniel was an old man in a wheelchair having suffered a stroke, but he was the head of the KKK. Um, a, a, a big branch of the KKK, formerly head of. Um, he had renounced all his ties, as they say. Um, of course, and I didn't want to call him up. I, um, I knocked on the door, and I had knocked on the door a whole bunch of times, and no one ever answered. And this one day, a woman answered, and I said who I was and what I was doing, and she said, come in, he's, he's having breakfast. And there he was in a wheelchair, looking like a frail, innocent old figure. But uh, it was pretty fascinating to talk to a guy who had commanded the KKK and, and uh, you know, linked the, his particular branch of the KKK to so many arsons and murders, and, you know, very few of which were ever prosecuted or convicted. And, of course, he... He was denying that he had done any wrongdoing, but it was a pretty fascinating experience to go inside that door and talk to Eddie McDaniel. There he was, the, imper the former imperial wizard. Just real quickly, because unfortunately we're just about out of time, but uh, can you encapsulate for us uh, just briefly what you would like people to take from this book, Sons of Mississippi? That's um. That's a real potent question, and I don't know that I'm up to answering it. I hope they would take away from it that each of us um, in America, each of us who is white in America, uh, needs to think about our own sense of intolerance. And I went to Mississippi because there's an old expression, no sense being a Marine if they're not going to send you to the fight. I, no sense thinking about civil rights if you don't go to the heart of the heart of the heart of where the story was back then. And that's the state of Mississippi, where all the, the bigotries were so fierce and palpable. And I wanted to go into the middle of that. And as I said, I'm the same color as those men. And, and look at them and maybe look backward at myself as well. Fine. Well... Uh, librarians as such, we don't have much power. If we did, I would order everybody in the community to read Sons of Mississippi. As it is, I recommend highly to anybody who's looking for a good book that will explain the history and maybe, as you say, a little bit of ourselves to come in and read Sons of Mississippi. Paul Hendrickson, thank you so much for joining us today on Book Chat. I'm grateful to, for, to have been here. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. I'm Carl Hallecker, and we'll see you again. Mm -hmm.